Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to Eastern Border. And today we are on an episode of The Red Line, a great podcast which invited me to interview for them with three experts, and yours truly somehow got mixed into with the other two actually smart people. But uh, I'm working on a Tales from Ludza episode. It's going, like, really hard for me. I had to move and uh, was in a hospital for a bit, and uh, it wasn't easy. So this time I'm bringing you please do subscribe to The Red Line, too, and uh, Michael here wants to talk to me about Transtrinistria, as I presume, and Moldova in general. I hope you find this fun. Okay, Michael. Sorry for ruining your show. Kind of an early apology there. No, no. Look, any any time I can have you on the show is always good. It's good to hear someone with a thick Russian accent talking, so it's always nice. Thick Russian accent? What the hell are you talking about, comrade? <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah. I'm fine. So, what's up? So, we're going to be talking about Transnistria today, which is the last republic in Europe that still has a hammer and sickle on the flag. We're talking, you know, from outsiders, looks like the last bastion of communism, but I don't quite think it is. Because of the flag, then I can agree with you, but I would say Belarus holds strong in this one as well. I mean, they literally have kolkhozs and KGB and Lenin's monuments everywhere. I know. I spent some time in Minsk, and the thing that really hit me about that was the fact that there was a just a billboard that said the word bread on it, and that was the most Soviet thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. Well, see, Minsk is a weird city. If I was a tourist, I probably wouldn't go there because it was totally, completely annihilated during World War II, so it was, like, rebuilt, so it's kind of very new. So there's, like, not that much to see in Minsk. Transtrinistia, however, oh boy. That's one of the uh, enclaves which would be considered, you know... They're kind of like Crimea for Russia, or more likely Donetsk, because to put this in perspective, uh, for my listeners, Transnistria is a sort of a kind of a piece of Moldovan Ukrainian borderlands in a very thin line where Soviet Union still exists. That is uh, at least how I see it, sort of ish with very close ties to Russia, but it's not like under Russian occupation, but it's basically a piece of Soviet Union still existing in Europe, except they're bizarre. They're in the same position as Donetsk or Lugansk or Abkhazia or North Ossetia in Georgia or Nagorno-Karabakh and between Armenia and Azerbaijan where there are still, you know, uh, struggles because Armenia is sort of pro-Russia, Azerbaijan is pro-NATO, but more authoritarian and kind of racist towards Armenia. So it's all a bizarre place. We're talking about one of the strangest places on the planet that you could possibly go to. Yes, Transnistria is this really, really odd place. It's this what it looks like on a map is a tiny little slither that's kind of the eastern bank of the Dniester River between, you know, the Dniester and, and the Ukrainian border. But effectively, it is, it was, they had a very short civil war in, in 92, about 150 people died. And now Russia permanently has, you know, about a 1,500 troops stationed there. Uh, the makeup, it's like one third Moldovans, one third Russians, one third Ukrainians, but they all speak Russian. They all get most of their subsidies from the Russian government. And, you know, it, it's almost a Russian republic to the point where when they did have a annexation referendum that uh, was overwhelmingly voting to join the Russian republic, but, you know, they never did. Um, because no one really wants... It's quite obvious because they, why they voted yes, though, because at their current status, they're like, hey, well, uh, joining Russia would actually be an improvement, which is a 
thing that very few places get to say, you know. Speaking with one of my guests on this episode, who I chatted to about this, who's living there, he's from the University of Tiraspol. He gave me a very good perspective on this, saying, you know, joining Russia, at least then we have we can get more benefits from Russia. We're not attacked. You know, it, it gives us more safety. Whereas right now they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. They can't integrate with Moldova because the Moldovans have said that they will not allow you know them to speak Russian. The Moldovans will demand that they just speak uh, you know Moldovan or close to Romanian. It is a policy of vengeance that I understand way too well. See, uh, thing is that if you lived under the Iron Curtain, as I've mentioned in my past episodes, even though Soviet Union was supposed to be like these republics joining together, it wasn't so. So Russians went everywhere else basically as colonizers, and you had to have street names in Russia, and Russia was used like English, and the local population was quite often brutally oppressed, and Russians had special privileges. It took my own country a lot of time to get away from this kind of Russophobic things, but that's what's happening in, in Ukraine and Moldova, you know, countries that recently have started this new cycle to democracy, right? It's a it's a bad attitude, but it's understandable in a way because, you know, you've been oppressed for so long that you just kind of want to fight back and you maybe take measures that are too harsh, in a way. If you're living at home and your parents never let you go out and then all of a sudden, you know, you move out of home, you go to college, then you're going to act out. Yeah. Uh, metaphor, I've been told. That's that really, yeah. It's close to this because everyone's like super anti-Russia here and that's also dumb, you know, because Russia is still our biggest trading partner. But in all the post-Soviet sphere, in all of this Eastern Bloc, you know, behind the Iron Curtain, uh, Russian still serves like uh, lingua franca, basically, you know, like everywhere else in the world uses English. We still use Russian mostly, and well, my generation at least, I'm 30 now, I was born in 1989, we all speak Russian. People who are like about 20 or so, they no longer do, they uh, mostly just switch to English. Yeah, and that's something I found when I've traveled out all through the old Soviet Union countries is that Russian is this liquid franco. But the weird bit I found with Latvia is Latvia is the only place I found everyone had a, what we would call here in Australia called a bug out bag, which is a bag you keep kind of in the back of your car or the back of your house. And it's got, you know, your passport, a couple of changes of clothes, some cash and, and you know, some good hiking boots to get out of Dodge as quick as possible if you need to be. In. Wait, that's not normal to have? No, that's not normal at all. We don't have that because, uh, you know, Australia. Oh, it's like, it's a, it's the default here. Cause, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a thing. I mean, I don't have a car, but I have a get out bag. Everyone I know has one. We don't really worry about the New Zealanders invading us though. You know, they're, uh, we beat them at the cricket and that's, a, that's enough for us. <laughs> well, beat them at the rugby and then we'll talk. Yeah, no, we, you know, let's try and do something we can actually achieve. The New Zealanders are always going to beat us at rugby. Okay, let's back to the topic. So what got me onto this topic and looking into Moldova and breakaway republics is the fact that almost everyone who has been in the Russian sphere or is ex-Soviet Union almost always either sides very heavily towards Moscow or has a breakaway republic. So we're talking your Armenias, your Azerbaijans, your Georgias, your Ukraines and your Moldovas who at one point were part of the Soviet Union or Soviet aligned. But now they have this part of the country that, you know, is is cut off and is completely different. What do you think? Why do you think the Russians would do that? That would happen with us too, because we have like I write live in a region right now. My show is called Eastern Border because it was like made here 20 kilometers from Russia. I live like literally on the eastern border of European Union, right? But the thing is that I explained this with one governments making serious mistakes. Like you mentioned the metaphor about the college kids getting out doing all the opposite things. So we have a population about like 200,000 people here who don't have Latvian citizenship, who are ethnically Russian because our government didn't give them citizenship right? And they're under this kind of sphere of influence still because all they consume are basically Russian media, which is very pro-Putin because support for Putin outside of Russia among Russians is much more pronounced than uh, support for Putin at home, really. Actual, real support for Putin because they believe all these nice tales about this heroic individual. And uh, basically, Russia is super interested in this and like making sure those emotions come to a fruition because that's how they solve their internal problems their corruption, their basically thievery and everything, because hell even, um, I think it was Gogol, but I might be mistaken, but there's a saying that if you would freeze me for 100 years and I would wake up after 100 years and if you'd ask what's happening in Russia, I would respond someone's getting drunk and stealing shit so that's what it is, and uh, there's a Russian kind of funny Wikipedia called Lurkmo 
or where everyone in Russian internet kind of goes to for information. But yeah, Russia is a interesting place, and we were part of the country, so we're all kind of united. And see some of the Russian people, you know, they they wanted to leave the Soviet Union, but then our countries went overboard, so the Russian populations got hostile to us, and they're like, well, uh, let's kind of join Russia. The problem is, uh, in most of the places at least in the Baltics, they don't want to join Russia outright, they don't want to move to Russia. They uh, kind of want to build their own little Russia, except without Putin and like living nice but being Russian. So that's what they did in, well, Transnistria as well. It's kind of like the Russian people felt like their privileges were going away. Well, unfairly, I have to say, and sometimes greatly, oppressed them too in the early 90s. So they kind of distanced themselves, they wanted to saying things. So they kind of want to build their own little Russia, except, you know, better with better standards, with blackjack and hookers, so to speak. I also remember if you look at Bismarcky and realpolitik, uh, you know, from that kind of term and point of view, you know, if let's say there were a bunch of Russians living in somewhere like, I'm going to say South Ossetia, and the Georgians actually cracked down, then, you know, as soon as there's a policeman beating up a, a woman in South Ossetia, if she holds a Russian passport, that story then becomes through the national media saying, Georgian police attack, you know, South Ossetia, a Russian woman. And that's a whole different thing. You know, the lower, the lower third of the TV saying, you know, Georgians attacked Russian women is very different to Georgians attack Georgian women. Uh, and it does allow for more of a pretext to enter a country or to go to war or to slap on sanctions and just gets the narrative further on your side. The more people that hold Russian passports, uh, you can either you know justify going in to defend them, and that's been seen through both the British and the Falklands and you know bringing up Germany in the 30s. And they use dirty tactics for this too. For example, here in Latvia, like the Russian age of retirement is about 10 years used to be 10 years below ours. Men could go into retirement at, uh, I think, 60, and women could go to retirement at uh, 55. They increased it by five years, which caused an outrage. But the thing is that uh, you could have all your Soviet era, because they are the de jure inheritance of the Soviets, right? We are not. So in Russia, they still kind of count all the Soviet, like, you know, time you spent working and Soviet taxes paid in your retirement funds. So a lot of people did that. They kind of advertised this in the television and everywhere. Hey, get the Russian citizenship, uh, receive Russian pensions, right? And a lot of people did, but then Russian economy collapsed due to sanctions, and now those people are, like, literally fucked. Now we have, like, lines where people are trying to get your Latvian citizenship back. But we have rules, because, you know, if you have literally denounced your Latvian citizenship to get a Russian, because we don't have a dual citizenship agreement there, yeah, that's becoming actually a social issue now, so. This is something I've seen quite a lot, you you know, this is the main thing. If you go to Gagauzia, which is another breakaway republic in, in the south of Moldova that connects with Ukraine, in fact, there's more of Gagauzia in Ukraine than it is in Moldova, but the Gagauzians are, are having this problem right now with their pensions that they all had jobs and they all had reliable pensions. But now that the Soviet Union's gone away and there's no, you know, there's no money coming in from Russia anymore and there's not real great job security in the south of Moldova at the moment because you know, sanctions, and we'll talk about that a bit later, but these guys are now really, really pissed off at Moldova because they have no money, they have no jobs, they have no prospects, and they kind of look a bit forlongingly back at the Soviet Union when it was, hey, I had job, I had a, a pension, I had a guaranteed income. You know, it's it's definitely breeding some resentment in, in places like Agalzia and Transnistria as well. That's expected. I mean, you weird capitalists sometimes don't understand the fact that um, we're used to things being bad. And uh, we're, we're used to things going wrong. Like, uh, and there's a recent example, because there's this game, which is called The Eye of the Beholder. It's a video game where you basically have to play a role of the big brother. You're the guy who literally is, you have to watch the cameras and spy on the inhabitants of a building and then report everything to your totalitarian government if they do something wrong. In the West, including Zero Punctuation, uh, Yahtzee and other game reviews, the reviews basically state that it is a kind of a very bleak, dark game which causes you to think about your own existence and is considered to be among the darkest, bleakest, kind of you know, most thought-provoking indie games of the last decade. Uh, over here in post-Soviet sphere, it's considered a super light-hearted parody. We're laughing at it because it's like, oh my god, this is so funny. I think the, the funniest thing, I, I remember being in, I think I was in Petersburg at the time, and I went to a bookstore, and they had a, a book called... Uh, 
a quick guide to Russian history and it was only one page long and it just said on the page and then it got worse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Baltics have been conquered by everyone all the time. We can relate. Well, welcome to flat territory. If I will ever afford myself to visit Australia, you, I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping on your couch, dude. Would love you to. I have a spare bed for that exact reason. Thanks, man. Uh, Sorry. People here act from more pragmatic reasons, right? You've been to Eastern Europe. A lot of people, for example, still like are quite homophobic. They also have some racist tendencies because they don't know how things are elsewhere. So they keep to their tradition. They keep to the Soviet nostalgia because, you know, back then we, we didn't have globalism. We didn't have internet, we didn't have access to other things at all. So a lot of people are in this mindset that they're just afraid of things that are different. At the same time, we're very introverted people. We're people who are very... No one will ask you about your sexual orientation at work. No one will ever mention that at all. And Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other evangelical people who want to go house to house, they have a super hard time here. It's just the thing that there is a strong feeling of nostalgia. And, well, when it comes to my generation, I was born in 1989, of the so-called renewal kids. I'm from the people who were born in the hopes that as the Soviet Union crashes, we are supposed to build capitalism. But we were raised in the way that is clearly Soviet realism. Like, you know, we were expected to build capitalism, but with the, with the same moral and ethical code of Soviets, which is like replacing basically generation, like millennials, I suppose. That's, that's, that's our way, because we, we can't really relate to modern millennials in this way. But uh, that's why I also can uh, understand why people would want to have their breakaway republics, why they want to be close to Russia, because nostalgia holds a lot of power here, and like World War II is still a very important issue here, and it's still politically divisive. I mean, if you look at the people in, in the age and demographics of most people in Russia, you know, they there's not as many baby boomers there, because obviously the war was quite dramatic on the Soviet Union. You've, so you've got these guys who are all sort of 40s, 50s, that kind of, they're starting to get old. And these guys live through the troubles, you know, the, the breakdown of the Soviet Union, where you go from having a functioning state with pensions and money and a guaranteed job to nothing in, you know, the space of a couple of weeks when the Soviet Union collapsed. And it was, it was bonkers when it all collapsed. Yeah. To understand the level of nothing, prices literally rose by uh, 12 to 20 times. That's one salaries just because we were just thrown into the free market without anything and i remember my aunt making about 25 american dollars per month per month because uh, everything went to hell because the Soviet Union was, you know, it wasn't built on the market basis at all. And to make things worse, everyone received privatization certificates like vouchers. And that happened everywhere in the post-Soviet sphere where, where things went from nationalized to privatized. But the Soviet military personnel received that too and they knew they were going to go out of the country and they wanted to stay here, not go to Russia. And that happened in Moldova and Romania and like everywhere that was in this side of the, of the Iron Curtain, everywhere. Same, after Ceausescu happened, the same thing. The thing is like, and the Russian kind of um, Soviet military personnel, mostly Russians, they uh, basically sold off Soviet military secrets, got a lot of money, and bought off those privatization vouchers for like 5% face value out of a starving local population. So now Russians are the biggest like landlords in Riga, and in Kishinev, in a lot of places, because they had the money, to buy your privatization vouchers, use them to buy apartments, and now they're basically the landlording class here, those who remain. And that's not unusual amongst all things. Again, the thing that boggles my mind is if you look, go through all the Clinton white papers and all the and what the UN and, and you know a lot of humanitarian organizations were suggesting to Clinton, they said, look, the transition between a managed Soviet-style economy and capitalism should be done over the space of six to ten years. Yet when they did it, they were forced to do it in you know, six to 10 months, it was such a dramatic crash out. And I think a lot of people are just panicked that they do not want to go back to that crazy, no safety net, insane time in the 90s. And that's everywhere I've traveled in, in the old Soviet Union, they pretty much go, look, things are bad, but they're not as bad as the 90s. So we're doing fine. That is true. Like not as bad as the 90s is like every person my age and older, uh, everyone who lived through the 90s knows that, hey, that, that is why the financial crisis of 2007 was like, well, at least it's not the 90s. Yes. Russians also have a, a 
betrayal complex to them. And that's what I find really interesting. Whenever I chat and I spent some time with the Russian Navy and I spent some time with the Russian Army, and the thing that they all talk about is, is the Bush betrayal. So when the Soviet Union coming down and Gorbachev is saying, look, you know, this is this is not going so well for us. I'm going to start opening up. They made a deal that they the Americans will not move NATO anywhere east of Germany. They can have East Germany and they'll have it peacefully and the war will come down, but they cannot move east of Germany. Yet NATO has moved further and further and further. I know. And we are very happy about this. Oh, I agree. Because, but- hey, in the Baltics, at least. We uh, take our defense very seriously because we have been conquered by Russians like multiple times. We're also been conquered by the Swedish, the French, the British, the Polish, uh, everyone. Okay, so joining NATO was like, hey, how about we uh, have our own country? You know, we kind of like that shit. We like really like that. So one one of the most interesting books I've read is is a guy named Tim Marshall who wrote a fantastic book called Prisons of Geography. Uh, And effectively, it sums up the fact that every country is given this hand of cards. Now, for yourself in Latvia, it's a pretty bad hand. You've got this bit between Denmark and Sweden. Your navy can be cut off quite easily. It's flat territory, so people can roll through. And we've seen it happen. Napoleon rolled through. Hitler rolled through. You know, people just roll through Latvia because it's it's very flat. And for a good chunk of the year, it's quite easy to drive machinery and tanks through. This is what the Russians fear, is the fact that it's it's between Berlin and, and Moscow is pretty flat. It's, it's There's not much in the way of natural defenses, rivers, mountains. Where- Look, what about the same territory size as Israel? And there's like 6 million people living here and 54% of the Baltics is a forest. The thing that we have while while Riga is, well, Riga is double the size of both Tallinn and triple the size of Vilnius. Riga is the only city in the Baltics that has over a million people living in it. Like literally half of our country lives in our capital. Yes, because Riga has been a major port for that region for a very, very long time. Yes, because we have Daugava, because the thing is like, if you want to travel by waterways from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, you take Daugava, you travel down, like, no, travel upstream, sorry, and then move to Dvina, and then go down and take like, the Black Sea. The thing is that um, we are kind of, you know, not Russian here. We're not Slavic peoples. We're Baltics and Estonians are Finno-Ugric. And then everyone is like, no, we want you in our empire. This is a bad issue, because in Latvia, Russians mostly live in Riga. So, you know, it's our capital, so I know that they won't make their own breakaway republic. However, uh, let's return back to the original subject of Transnistria. This thing can happen because... I can also understand, because, like, the Soviet Union forcibly moved people. They acted like a colonial power in a way that they, you know, if you lived in, uh, under this side of the Iron Curtain, say in Moldova, then you would have a bunch of Russians, because Soviet Union has assigned your workplace and your place of service everywhere, you know, as far from home as possible, so that you wouldn't desert. And they uh, basically sent people away to live someplace else. And then they started their families and they got apartments while everyone else was living in communal ones. So uh, there were cities where basically Russians are major majority of the population because they literally were brought there from Moscow, which is overpopulated, and 20 million people live in there. It's uh, bigger than New York. People were just brought into everywhere else in the Iron Curtain in the hopes of Russifying them. Policy started by uh, Stalin, no less, you know. It's why you can find German families living in, you know, the eastern bits of Kazakhstan. Um, you know, they moved you know, populations around all the time. I have a listener from uh, Mongolia, this one guy. He's an American, but married into a Russian woman who ha- was moved there that way. So what I always found interesting, uh, one of my favorite books growing up was Sun Tzu's Art of War. And I know that sounds very cliche, but what I always found interesting about it is, is the big prospect of look at how your enemy thinks and, and, you know, look at how the Russian mindset is. Russia used to be, you know, let's go to 1989 before the collapse of Germans. Now, effectively, they had this lovely arrangement where their Western borders right up to Germany. So they have all this buffer space to, you know, fight the allies if the allies are going to go make a move all the way from Germany through Poland through you know through Belarus right up to Moscow at all that ground you know they're they're anchored themselves against the Carpathian Mountains and anyone who's done any strategic planning will tell you that once you cross the Carpathian like getting through the mountains is a pain in the ass I'm very sorry but uh, is your background military because you you seem to know a lot about these matters uh no but I did grow up in a military household so it's uh, just a fascinating uh, subject okay yeah um they're anchored in the mountains in Moldova. They can't cross the Carpathians, so they're pretty much safe from that flank coming in. In the south, they're anchored at the Varda River in uh, in Bulgaria, and no one's going to come through. You know, you're not going to go through Turkey. You're not going to be able to come through Bulgaria because there's mountains there, and you've got 
your huge, you know, Thrace is a pain in the ass to cross on the best of days, let alone with tanks, fuel, men, ammunition. So the, the Russians feel very, very, very comfortable at that point. Then when everything collapses and breaks down, all of a sudden they have no plane. They just have flat ground between, you know, effectively Poland and, and Moscow. They have a lot of places to retreat, though. They do. They have a lot of places to retreat. But if you look at Russian, uh, how they lay out their towns, it's very reminiscent of the Russian Empire and also the, the Soviet Union that everything flows through Moscow. So if you get a train from, for instance, from Volgograd to Nizhny Novgorod, most of the time you have to go through Moscow. Yeah, even when I fly... If I do have to give you a compliment by the way, your Russian pronunciation of names and places is excellent. Better than most Westerners, by the way. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, uh, it's all the vodka I drink, I'm sure. But even flights, you know, if you want to get a flight from, let's say, Omsk to Murmansk, you have to go through Moscow. Moscow is the central hub and everything goes through it. Now, I say even more. See, the thing is, like, uh, I don't know how it's like in Australia, but I know that businesses tend to be decentralized, for example, in the United States and Canada. Yes, that's correct. There might be big businesses in, like, say, Quebec or, uh, on the other hand, of British Columbia and, and Vancouver mostly. But in Russia, even, like, the small business doing some diamond mining or whatever, every business is registered in Moscow. Moscow gets all the taxes. It's literally a very center-periphery relationship. Moscow is the uber center of everything, and the next big city is St. Petersburg, which is used to be the previous capital, and they still take pride in themselves. So uh, the thing is that everything goes through Moscow. Finances, everything. Well, that actually exactly fits into my point that I'm trying to make, the fact that you know it used to be Petersburg, and the reason they moved it from Petersburg back to Moscow uh, was because it was so vulnerable to, you know, invasions from the Finns and you can also invade it from the sea to which Russia has never been a dramatically good sea power. Invasions of the Finns. Oh no, the scary Finns. You know, when we have like jokes here, it's like, you know, if an Estonian overtakes someone on the road, then that other person definitely must be a Finn. The, yeah, <laughs> I just got that. So that's the Baltic humor. We're, we're locked in a friendly rivalry and also with the Finns too, so, you know. I know, it's, uh, I love, I sat in a bar with a bunch of Finns and a bunch of Estonians and watching them uh, snip at each other all night was hilarious. But the thing that Russia panics about is the fact that if, if the central government is captured, if Moscow was to go, you know, be captured, then all your breakaway republics, your Chechnyas, your Dagestans, your, your, your Tanatubas, all these guys, even the guys towards Vladivostok will likely want to push away because they'll see it as their moment of opportunity, particularly Dagestan and Chechnya. Oh, yes, and that will also happen in the case of any democratic reforms in Russia as well, because Ramzan Kadyrov, unlike Putin, is a young person who's in, like, in complete control and has its own unofficial tax system included in Chechnya, every, everyone. And this is a thing. I fully predict Russia in 2024, when Putin's term runs out, for the second time, by the way, uh, Russia is going to turn either into the world's largest North Korea or it's going to split apart. Two options. Nothing else can possibly happen. Literally. Russia, as we know it, will cease to exist in 2024 and something else. Either they, either Belarus joins them or something, but something has to happen. And then our nice little breakaway uh, unofficial republics, they will see their life upturned. And I'm giving 2024 as the final date, not the earliest one. Uh, current prognosis of Russian economy, for example, states that due to the upcoming oil price fall, again, Russia might as well, if Putin actually manages to the end of his term, then uh, there are people who would like to state that Russia is going to change up and end the way we know it. It's still going to exist, but in some different format or with much less territory. Uh, 2021 is the earliest day that that could happen. I personally think that uh, some massive change is going to happen in 2024. But yeah, people in Transnistria are going to have to make some very harsh choices in that year. And well, that's a bold prediction, but that's what my people who work in Russian like government, I will not say their names, obviously, but they send me emails. That's what they say. So. Hey guys, Annette here. Glad to have you with us for a new episode of The Eastern Border. This time we're collaborating with Michael from the Red Line podcast, so please go check it out and subscribe to him. As always, a big thank you to our Patreons. If you're not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to patreon.com slash the eastern border to find out how you too can support our show. To keep up to date with all things Eastern Border, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And don't hesitate to send us a message with your comments and questions. That's it for now. Thank you for listening and see you online. This podcast brought to you by Russian voiceovers.com 
Enjoy. Enjoy. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's a great book by George Friedman called The Next Hundred Years, and he does talk a lot about this sort of what will happen if Russia breaks apart. Because if Russia leans too far towards the West, you're going to find the republics will break away. And if it goes too far towards the East, you're going to find a lot of the more metropolitan liberal bits of Russia are going to be more keen to protest and break away. And it's, it's you know, and that's where a lot of economic money comes from as well. So it, it's a toughie. Um, and it, I can't predict where Russia is going to go in the next 20 years. But I think they're putting all their eggs in the basket and having a polar silk road. Uh, their deals with China and the fact that they now have sponsored China to, uh, as a permanent member of the Arctic Observer Council uh, would, would suggest that they're, they're going to be working with... China owns so much of Russia outright at this point. Uh, your listeners might not know, mine do, but the uh, thing is, corrupt governors are renting Chinese businesses insane amounts of forest with the ground beneath them, you know, with all, where all the good resources are, for as low as 49 American dollars per year per square kilometer. They own most of the forest East. Putin's government acquired Crimea, yet lost about five to six Crimeas to such a deal, where basically Chinese businesses are coming, and uh, China's government is now basically uh, showing maps in school, showing the far eastern parts of Russia, including Lake Baikal, as their own kind of property. And uh, they're actually selling uh, Baikal's water as mineral water in China, and there are Chinese tour guides who are basically stating that, oh, this is actually all Chinese. Have fun. Russia's going to have to have, like, huge problems from the East themselves. Of course. And Russia's had big problems with its Eastern provinces for a very long time. I mean, frankly, the amount of money the Russians have to put in to keep places like Vladivostok and Yakutsk and Omsk uh, properly supplied is is just mind-boggling. It's Australia's problem on steroids. Now, I'm from the west coast of Australia, so uh, from, to my nearest capital city is a, is a three-hour flight. It's a very long way. And we have the same things. There's one highway that connects... Uh, you know, connects my town of Perth. For European listeners, a three-hour flight is what gets you from Helsinki to London. Oh, yeah. So Perth to Sydney. So Sydney's the biggest city. Uh, is the same distance as Spain to Moscow, to put it in perspective. Australia's huge, but that's a whole other thing. What the Russians are really sort of panicked about, about this whole thing with NATO encroaching, is now that, uh, you know, the US have had a large bomber fleet based at just west of Narva in Estonia, which effectively means that they are a 12-minute flight from bombing St. Petersburg. And that's, you know, that's crazy to a Russian to think that they're 12 minutes away from being bombed. You know, remember that in 1962, we almost blew up the entire world because the Russians put missiles in Cuba. Uh, you know, and that was far further away than, you know, the, the Americans are based in, based in Estonia. So I can see why the Russians are paranoid because they have watched... NATO encroaching and encroaching, and it's now happening again in Moldova. As you might be aware, Moldova's just signed a free trade agreement with the EU, uh, and they're pushing out a lot of textiles and a lot of electricity because that's what they can push out. Uh, and they are watching Moldova slowly turn towards Brussels. No, but that's a, that's a reasonable thing. That's a reasonable thing if you are looking from a Western perspective, because right now we have this division of Eastern and Western Europe, right? But it wasn't that way, because uh, in the interwar periods, for example, I'm going to talk about the Baltics here, but Moldova, at that point, it was part of Romania. But they still had an economic boom. Like, our GDP per capita in Latvia was about the same size as Belgium. Like, Belgium and Netherlands level of quality of life. And it, it happened there, and the Soviets really, like, Everyone else had a hypocalistic boom after World War II. We didn't. 
we uh, basically stagnated and that's why our development was lagging behind. And it's just natural for people who live in actual democratically elected countries to wish to live in prosperity. So I can totally understand the Moldovans and my own countrymen and myself. We don't care whatever Russia thinks. We have been caring about what Russia thinks for such a long time that, uh, yeah, they dragged us down and beat us sometimes with legs even. That's a quote from 12 Chairs, but fine. But, like, uh, I understand Russian people, too. But the thing is that I think that a lot of their ultra-patriotism, because there are people who thought otherwise and they wanted this open market situation for Russia, they wanted to be friends with Europe. Let's not forget that Putin himself toyed with the idea of joining the EU from Russia in his first term. Uh, so there were people like Boris Nemtsov, there were people like um, Belkovsky. Belkovsky, who was a major uh, oppositionary and divergent from the system uh, during the Soviet and then he was against um, this fakery of elections in Russia and was an oppositionary candidate who could have beaten Putin, but Putin literally arrested him and gave him a criminal charge for jaywalking so that he couldn't run for the president. Yeah, uh, there were people in Russia who wanted integration with the West themselves as, as basically a way of modernizing, westernizing, you know, doing Peter the Great's reforms once again. And now Russia is suffering from their own, like, corruption and stuff, and that happened here as well. So, uh, on one hand, you can understand the Russians, on the other, yeah, they kind of wanted to go to this path themselves, but their country was stolen from them. And secondly, uh, if you think about it, they uh, have this imperial way of thought, so to speak. They want to be a superpower on their own, and that kind of pushes down on you. I'm talking about a certain mentality that's being pushed through all the media that exists there. Well, state-funded media. So that also plays a big role, and it's going to be a while until in Russia the the freezer beats the television, so to speak. Yes, uh, people people have ideologies, but at the same time, if their day-to-day lives get better or worse, I mean, the, the biggest phrase everyone, you know, that Bill Clinton always used to say was, it's the economy, stupid. To play devil's advocate here, the Russians, when they were turned to the West, so we're talking uh, before Tsar Nicholas II, you know, the early 1900s, was a period of very low development for Russia. I mean, if you look at their industrial output, you know, the amount of calories per citizen, it was dramatically higher in the Soviet Union, and then it obviously got worse towards the end. But a lot, this is what's happening in Transnistria. Right now, Moldova is in this weird position that, A, if they were to really piss off Russia... Most of Moldova's cheap gas and all their electricity comes from, funnily enough, Transnistria. It mostly comes from the large power stations in Tiraspol built there in the Soviet times. So if they piss Russia off, they're going to have a very, very bad winter because all the electricity will go, all the gas will go, and they don't have the infrastructure coming in from you know, the West yet to be able to you know, back that up. So if effectively, if they say, no, Russia, we're going to join NATO, we're going to do this, Russia will go, well, you're going to have a very, very cold winter then. And Russia has that card to play. Yeah, they do. They do. And uh, but, the, but the gas situation and oil situation, that's that's kind of the biggest Russia's problem. Alternative energy is something that's, you know, you're, you're not going to find a lot of fans of that in Russia. Uh, other thing is the fact that uh, Transnistria, just like Belarus, has basically, uh, they buy gas from Russia. The, the pipes that the gas and oil runs through is owned by Gazprom because they sold it for loans. They got super cheap loans from the Russian government, but for that they had to basically sell their pipes and all the, all the system, all the infrastructure of delivering gas to Russia as well. That's a major issue. Well, this is, this is what you have when... Um, when we in Latvia, for example, we, we didn't do that, but when we speak about the Russian influential power, and this is why green energy is so big here, because, you know, a lot of people don't want to be in the same situation as Transnistria or Belarus, where uh, if we make a wrong political move, then we will all uh, starve and freeze to death, you see. That's one of the main things that Russia uses as its, you know, carrot and stick, and that's its main carrot. So Germany has been supplied with the Nord Stream 1 and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline for a very long time, and the German economy relies very heavily on gas prices being quite cheap, particularly on most German homes, particularly ones built after about 1980. Talking about Germany, but that's all with Putin's government because Germany right now signed a deal with Russia where 
12,000 metric tons of radioactive waste will now go back to Russia. Germans are smart people, they're just using... Uh, they have a deal with Putin's government, and for all their talk of liberalism and all the nice ideas, the German government is the friendliest one to Russia and all of Europe. So uh, they make deals with them, make a deal with Putin, Angela Merkel privately speaks with Putin because she speaks Russian and Putin speaks German, and they are the friendliest folks when it comes to Putin and the last to implement any sanctions whatsoever. So much for their love of democracy and everything. Again, you know, people do things in their own interest before their ideologies is what I, I tend to be cynically saying. Angela Merkel gets cheap gas. And don't forget that the head of Rozhneft in uh, in Russia is is an ex-German chancellor. Uh, you know, frankly, the Germans have a very close connections with Russia. Gerhard Schröder at that. Yes, yes. Gerhard Schröder is, is the head of Rozhneft who... You know, he's an ex-German chancellor. Of course, the Germans are friendly. The Germans know, and as well as the Russians do, that if, if the gas price was to, for instance, you know, the gas price made more expensive, people wouldn't blame Moscow. They'd blame Berlin. And then they lose an election. And remember, the German, because it's a multi-party system over there, you know, they would lose their coalition. As it is, the Christian Democrats are holding on by the skin of their teeth. and They may not even win the next election and form a coalition. You know, especially if, if they go into a winter with high gas prices. The US, just because the gas prices went up with the Iran crisis and the whole country almost tore itself apart. I don't think Germany wants to risk that card, particularly with guys like AFD and a few of these hard right parties saying, you know, they know they will take advantage of the chaos and they will probably lose their, their winnings. Political capital is still capital, comrade. Yes, I agree. I fully agree with that one. The thing that also is the biggest reason that I think Russia probably takes bites out of countries is because apart from NATO's uh, charter, from Article 2 particular, I'm pretty sure it's Article 2, states that you cannot have an ongoing border dispute and join NATO because then it would, you know, Article 5 would be triggered. So let's say, you know, Ukraine joined NATO tomorrow, Article 5 would be immediately triggered because technically, you know, a NATO member is at war with Russia. So effectively then that's it, we're at war. With Moldova having a bit lost, with Georgia having a bit lost, with Ukraine having a bit lost, it forces them to either have to give up that bit. Now, for particularly Georgia, who is the most likely to join NATO, they would have to give up all of South Ossetia and all of Abkhazia. We also had to give up a region to join NATO, by the way. Yes. Well, Abrena, we had a dispute, but we uh, gave that up, which is a thing. That's very lucky for Latvia that they have the ability to do that, because frankly, as you said, Riga is a very highly concentrated city. You know, effectively, you could afford to lose a slither of, uh, of Latvia and still function, whereas someone like... Uh, Abkhazia or South Ossetia or for Moldova to Raspol uh, and Transnistria, which frankly, if that goes, Gagauzia goes as well. And they lose, you know, A, their biggest, their only real entrance to the sea and B, they lose all their power and gas supplies. So they're not, Moldova is not willing to pull that card um, because, you know, they would have to give up the things that keep the country afloat. And that's why Russia plays the cards they do, in my opinion, but I may be wrong. No, that, that, is, that is true to an extent, but the same happens with Donetsk, because for the most part, the people living close to the Russian border don't want to be a part of Russia, but they kind of have to. It's a bizarre situation. The same fact is, well, say, let's say... Uh, Chile or Argentina wants to build a Southern American empire. United States wouldn't allow them, right? There's a lot of sway of the United States and all the Latin American countries. The same goes for all the previous SNG countries, you know. They're, they want to have their border zone, they want to have their markets. That's why they kind of focus and concentrate on uh, various pro-Russian movements in those countries too, in various ways. That's Russian foreign policy and they take pride in that because, like I said, it's this imperialist mindset that we had this huge empire and now we lost it and now those little uh, people want to think they're only independent? What the hell? That ain't gonna happen, yo. I think there's a big difference between Russian foreign policy and how average Russians feel. And most Russians I've spoken with have been absolutely lovely and they kind of go, look, you know, we, we understand why. Average Russians don't care about politics. They're among the kindest and nicest people whose government has been stolen from them. That's my view. I, I have relatives living there, man. So. <laughs> yeah. Russia capturing Donetsk is not actually gonna be hugely beneficial for them. In fact, with the damage done in, in, in places like Donetsk and Luhansk, it would be, you know, a huge burden on the Russian already overstretched coffers to try and rebuild them and get them back to where they are. But it allows them to have a complete say into Ukrainian politics. So I'm very sure that, you know, when Zelensky won the election, he would have had a call from Putin saying, look, here's what, you know, this needs to go, you know, somewhat better 
or we're going to shove a bunch of you know Russian uh, military arms and military personnel, and we're going to shove a bunch of anti-tank missiles in there. Oh well, well, you you wouldn't call that from Russian media because Russian media is all about like secret NATO tanks are in uh, Ukraine and uh, like if not today, then definitely tomorrow. The Americans will cross the Russian border and march out their way to Moscow. Evil, foul Ukrainian fascists who and this is the uh, this is a literal story. Um, Russian TV reported that Ukrainian government had captured a kid, found out that he spoke only Russian, and literally drowned him by using liquid concrete. Jesus. They're not even trying to hide their fake news at this point, so... Yeah. But again, like, yeah, one of my favorite games growing up was Medieval Total War, and I'm going to show my age right there, because it was the original that I really loved. Dude! Such a game. I love that game! It was awesome! One of the interesting things is every country you go to has... Uh, victory through glorious achievements and victory through you know your country or empire's goals what the special achievements you can go uh, i think every country does have that you know moldova's you know special achievements right now would be to integrate the place where all their power comes from where they're not going to they can't achieve that at this point um you know and build up the economy russia's achievements right now is to not have antagonistic forces so close to their capital and and you know in a position where if everything goes wrong and the war breaks out, they will be in a bad position. And again, the the best thing I've ever heard was from a naval commander here in Australia who said, defense and your army is nothing more than an insurance policy. Your entire foreign policy is designed to stop the worst happening. And for Russia, the worst happening is either Moscow being captured, the country breaking into a bunch of pieces, or the regime, you know, wiped out. The biggest issue is that, well, Moldova, sadly, and all the Baltics, everyone, well, we... We live on the border between the East and West, and we're the guys who are going to get nuked, you know, with little tidy tactical nukes. Oh, of course. So we're fucked. If you read a fantastic uh, white paper called uh, 12 Days to Paris, it was from 1983, and it was the Russian plan for if war breaks out, uh, this is how we're getting to Paris. And the aim was to be have tanks moved from, from Leipzig to Paris in 12 days, which is mind-boggling because what the Russian aim was take as much of it as possible. Now, Denmark gets nuked 18 times in this thing, and a little tiny Denmark would suffer horrifyingly. Latvia, oof, you guys are not having a great time either. Uh, the American plan was it was even crazier because it would, it would be that they would drop a nuke in front of their Navy convoys every mile and a half across the entire Atlantic to clear submarines out, form this irradiated corridor of, of just so they can get their boats through. It was a nuts thing. The world would have ended, and I'm very glad it didn't happen. Um, but yeah. I read that plot, and I'm a staunch pacifist ever since, because war is stupid. Oh, I agree, and it's why no one, and no one wants to go down that road. I don't think anyone's looking for to start a nuclear war, particularly as, you know, how quickly it only takes one guy to launch a tactical nuke and you've crossed that line. So Russia isn't willing to... Except uh, except Vladimir Zhirinovsky. Yes, well. Who totally wants to cross that line. Yeah, but he, you know, no one takes him seriously. Oh, neither do I. There are some crazies out there, and there's also some evangelical Bible bashers in Texas who I'm sure will tell you the same thing. Uh, we have, you know, people yes. in our government who say very similar things, uh, you know. Crazy is as crazy does. Your country is the only one who actually has, like, lost a prime minister. Yes. This is the thing I sum up Australia best with. And when people ask me, what is my country like? We had a prime minister in the 60s called Harold Holt, who one day went out for a swim and he never came back. And we don't, we'd never found the corpse. We don't know where he is. But the funny thing is this country, to, to memorialize him, decided to make out in Melbourne the Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Pool. So a guy that drowned, we made a swimming pool for him. That is the best way I can sum up this country in a heartbeat. I, uh, my personal goal now is to visit your country. And, you know. We would love to have you. Bring a Soviet flag with me. <laughs> no, we would love to have you. I mean, I, I hope so. Because it would only be literally going to the other side of the planet. But I've done that once or twice to the States. It's a long flight. I know, and the last time I went to... Your end of the world, I went Perth to Kuala Lumpur, Kuala Lumpur to Oman, Oman to Paris, Paris to Minsk. That's how you get there. The biggest issue with, with the Trans-Tristian and Unrecognized Republics is that they are going to have to make a choice in the following years. They are going to have to figure stuff out, and there's a, there's a crisis brewing for those, for those places. And I do hope that the government there actually sides with the people and that there is no violence, because, you know... Uh, 
Baltics got their independence fairly bloodlessly. There were dead bodies on the streets, obviously, but uh, it was way less bloodier than, for example, what might have happened in Ukraine. But though, and those things are inevitable for Transnistria, for Abkhazia, for other places like that. And all we can do is basically hope that as few people die as humanly possible. We got away with a couple of hundreds, so it was fine. It was very lucky, and frankly, the the singing revolutions, as they call them in the Baltics, was was a miracle. It, it went as well as it did. The difference here, though, is that when you guys broke away, there was infrastructure. You know, there was pipelines the Germans could supply you with. It was easy enough for the Germans to be taking stuff out of the ports of Germany and shoving it straight into the Baltics. You know, you guys could survive that tumultuous time when you that first baby steps into the Republican. Uh, the Moldova doesn't have that. They've got the Carpathian Mountains. They're Ukrainian. You can't, you know, you don't know where Ukrainian is going to fall on this. Uh, Romania is either going to take you very quickly because that's been Romania's foreign policy to, you know, a lot of hard Romanian nationalists still believe that Bessarabia and, and Moldavia and, and, you know, still belong to the Romanian nation. So you're either going to get invaded by Romania, which means you're now taking your leadership from Bucharest, which is the whole reason they broke away in the first place. You know, there's not the infrastructure there because all their gas, all their electricity, all the pipes all come from Russia. You know, luckily enough, Latvia had some friends in the West who could supply them. I don't think uh, both Georgia, uh, Armenia, or uh, Moldova have that luxury, unfortunately. Uh, yes, well, what can you do? Expect a lot of deaths in the future. That's like rain, you know. It's gonna get worse. It's it's getting worse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, 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 the statement that you made about, you know, the, the short history of, of all the region, yeah, it's gonna get worse. What can you do? It could. It, it it, it, it's hard to know. I mean, by all accounts, the breakup of the Soviet Union should have been far worse than it was. It was bad. It was awful for everyone in Russia. But I mean, if you read the estimate papers in, in, the, in the sort of the late 70s saying, if the Soviet Union was to break up, we are expecting 120 mil to die and someone to launch a nuke. Uh, it fortunately didn't go that way. It still it was awful for the people in Russia, but it could have been worse. The thing is, like that's that's why I have such great interest studying the papers because a lot of them are just being you know pulled out from governmental secrecy just now because almost thirty years have passed. Yeah, the twenty five year seal has come up. As I read them, it's so close. It was literally one phone call away from nuclear war. One phone. And in between republics themselves, you know, because we all had nukes. And it was just how this didn't blow up. Well, it's just because some people in power are reasonable now and then. And they are good people who also don't want to be responsible for deaths of millions, hundreds of, like, insane amount of people. And all that we can hope for is that, yeah, well, that because of this Transnistria issue and all the other places, that, that Bismarck will be wrong in the 21st century, even though he was totally right in the 20th. I think if Bismarck had seen nukes, he would have maybe changed his mind. But I, I think Putin would rather be the prince of a, of a great city than the king of a desolate, you know, nuclear wasteland. There is no winners in nuclear war. And it will only be terrible. And that's where, unfortunately, we are now at a point where if war breaks out, there's a great British TV show called Yes Minister. And they talk about, you know, this British prime, this uh, guy becomes British prime minister. And they go, well, when would you launch the nukes? He goes, oh, well, I would, I, you know, if they take Germany, I won't launch them. Okay, well, what about when they get to France? Well, I won't launch them. Well, what about when they touch British soil? Oh, I wouldn't launch them. What at that? They're at 10 Downing Street. And he goes, yeah, I'd probably launch them. There is a point where someone will panic and push a button. Uh, you know, if things go to a hot war. So no one wants to risk that. That would be the end of times as we know it. And then the survival manual is basically dressed up in a white, sh white sheet and goes straight to graveyard. I mean, what's the point otherwise? Unless you live in uh, rural Australia, which... I, <laughs> I, am I am now starting to reconsider my life choices made up until this point. Hmm. Exactly. Me, you, we'll start, a, we'll start a sheep farm out in rural Australia and uh, outlast this thing. Oh, man. I don't know. The, the, see, I wasn't I was in Donetsk, right? This is also a break with Republic. And there are two kinds of people that, I mean, there are people who want to join Russia a lot. And then there are those people who are just in there for the ride. Some commotion is happening out on the streets and they're going to go there with flags and support it because, you know, it's something fun happening. They're not really buying into this ideological thing. Uh, the thing is, like, in Transnistria, when I visited the place, I thought that, um, I thought that the majority of people were just, like, you know, going, going forth with it and they weren't, like, you know, ideologically super defensive about 
about their government and stuff, so... Hey, maybe they could work something out with Moldova somehow? I don't know. So people like stability. And people like to get up in the morning and know that if they go to work, they're going to come home fine now at the end of the shift. You know, they are starting to do free trade deals. So for instance, what Moldova or Transistor does sorry, right now is they have a huge textile industry. But what they buy is they buy made in Moldova tags... Uh, and pay a little bit of a customs as they come across the river. And they, you know, flood you know, effectively the European market with very, very cheap textiles because the average living wage in Transnistria is very, very low. Um, they, this is why they're starting to look towards Brussels. But as much as they can look towards Brussels and as much as they can sell all the blankets they possibly can, they still have no source of oil, gas, electricity, uh, or arms uh, or you know an army really because the transition army is very small they're mostly relying on the 1500 russian soldiers based there um it, it's that decision of do i go with possibility of getting some money to which you know the, the move to the west has not been kind on everyone i'm, I'm looking at you you know north macedonia uh, serbia uh, you know even bits of bits of moldova itself north macedonia is an in joke in europe in general because come on macedonians greeks everyone else is like staring at you and like is it really that important? But for them it is. For them it is. Unfortunately, that's what happens when you have a lot of nationalists in government hung up on little, little, little issues. You know, we, our nationalists always get hung up on, on, you know, what bathroom someone can go, you know, take a wee in. Some people who think that way, you know, they don't particularly think rationally. And it's a lot easier to yell at Greece about a name than it is to address why there's systemic corruption and, and why the economy hasn't moved forward incredibly fast since Yugoslavian times. Ah, well, stuff happens, and hey, but the bathroom is in Australia. Well, I would say go to the place where there are, like, less spiders, because as far as I'm concerned, I have all, the only things you hear from Australia are, like, when giant spiders try to kill people or something. So that is a bit overblown. Not, not everywhere in Australia is covered in spiders, but I grew up in a regional area, so I actually have been bitten by a spider, a snake, a shark, a scorpion, and a llama. So I've had bad luck over the years. Oh no, not the llama. Not the llama. Anything but the llama. They're awful things. They spit in your face as well. I love all animals except llamas. Weird tangents, as usual. <laughs> Look, we'll have to do this in person so we can uh, add, you know, add vodka to the equation and make the tangents even weirder. Definitely, definitely. If I ever if I arrive in Australia in some way or form, I'm letting you know because I'm going to Perth anyway. So. Sounds like a plan. We'll, uh, we'll show you. If any of your listeners are listening and you you're interested in coming to Perth, Google a quokka. It's like a tiny, round, soccer ball-shaped mouse that constantly smiles and they're fantastic and they're cuddly and they're lovely and that's what people come here for. They're fantastic. Oh yeah, one thing, one thing, by the way, uh, that definitely people on Transnistria also know because like uh, when our television was in the 90s, like when the Soviet Union collapsed, all of our Eastern Bloc countries, all of them, purchased Australian TV shows for like kids because they were much cheaper than American ones. So everyone grew up knowing what Blinky Bill was, for example. <laughs> uh, and we had like we got a bunch of these. We had like a Australian teenager high school comedy dramas and everything. Like all of our kids' programming was basically presented super cheap by Australian ones. So I've seen the cartoon in the '90s with like Blink, where Blinky Bill wore like red overcoats and stuff. And He's a national hero, that man. Some red overalls, yeah. That that one. I grew up with that one. That little uh, little koala bear. Well, that we grew up knowing him quite personally as well. So so uh, effectively, my my summary of, of if I could give a summary on Transnistria, would be the fact that they are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They can't go fully towards Brussels. They can't go fully towards Moscow. They're unrecognized and there's nothing going to change. I mean, the only ones who do recognize them are South Ossetia and Amkazia, who, yeah, it's not going to go anywhere either. It's a, it's a complicated mess. Russia is feeling like it's been betrayed and that you have people moving right up to their borders. So they want to you get some nice anchor positions like they did in the 80s. The West feel like, you know, they can give liberal democracies and Russia needs to let go of its of its Western parts. I don't know how America would react if the Russians, let's say, had a moved into Mexico and Mexico became friendly to Russia. Yeah, I think the Americans would lose their mind on that. So I, I can see why Russia's losing their mind on this. But Russia's moved into Venezuela already, so... Yeah, Venezuela. The We have a phrase in Australia, couldn't organise a root in a brothel with a handful of 50s. Um, the you know <laughs> Venezuela has no capacity to to invade even Colombia or even Suriname. You guys are the reason why I no longer use the word root for what I'm saying <laughs> in the sense of rooting for uh, rooting for a team. No, I'm not. I'm not just. I, I'm not rooting for anyone anymore. Just saying. Uh, my family Canadians. 
and they always send me a there's a Canadian clothing brand called Roots for Kids, which I always giggle at. Want a sorry? Yeah, they always send me that. Yep. So it's a always cringe at that one. <laughs> but yeah, transfer history is, is stuck that way. I completely agree. And well, like I said, um, I hope they get through it because it's not gonna get easier. Like it's always written in Russian history, it only gets worse. Sometimes it gets better, but for a short time only. Yeah, we hope so. Um, it, I hope it it crashes with a soft landing is the best I think I can hope for. In a way, you have to hope that Russia does the same as well in the future. Yeah, it would be what fears me uh, is if Russia was to break up into a bunch of separate republics. So we'd see like yeah, Sakhalin and a few of these guys all break into separate republics. It would be the next scramble for Africa, uh, China, America. I mean, frankly, where everyone's investing in the moment is polar icebreakers for this exact purpose. I mean, Russia has already you know made two divisions of, of Arctic troops. Uh, as well as they have a fleet of 49 or 48 nuclear icebreakers. America has six, by the way. China has just commissioned two. By the way, another reason of uh, Russian nuclear icebreakers is the fact that they have Russian submarines out of the nukes, right? And a lot of them are stationed in the north. The problem is that they need the icebreakers because the, nu- because the missiles... See, the submarines cannot launch their nukes from the northern ocean because their rockets do not gain speed and they literally can't break the ice so they, they need the ice broken over them to be able to launch their nukes from the north northern oceans i'm not i'm not kidding the best thing i've ever heard about russia is the fact that it is the only country that for six months of the year is becomes the largest landlocked nation of all time um you know if, if you look at deep water ports that russia has it's religious it's got mamansk which for six months of the year is unusable it's frozen up there Global warming is slowly changing that, but for now it's still frozen. They've got Crimea and the, and Sevastopol, but even then you're always going to get caught at the Bosphorus and you can't get your boats out. You've got uh, Vladivostok way over near Japan, which A, it's impossible to get troops all the way there in a, in a, in a timely manner. And even then you get boxed in by, by the tip of Japan, Okinawa uh, and uh Senkaku, the Senkaku Islands as well. Um, there's no... Also, knowing knowing Russia, while they could theoretically, logistically move their troops to Vladivostok and route about 50% of the gasoline would get stolen, people would get drunk, uh, tanks would be also lost, you know. It also goes down one train line. So the British ran an army exercise, or NATO ran an army exercise a few years ago, um, where they, seen, they were seeing how fast they could get troops from... Uh, from London to Bucharest, effectively, in the in they were doing a, a war game for an invasion of Moldova. Uh, they could do it quickly, and they had lots of different routes they could take. So it was very hard to pick where they were going to go. You know, they could take highways through Austria, and they could take Eurobahns, and they could do lots of things. Whereas moving your troops from, let's say, the uh, Volgograd region right through to uh, Vladivostok means you go down one train line, which means that if you have drones attacking you, they know exactly where you're going to be at exactly the right time. It makes it much harder to transport troops and it makes it much easier to spot the troops coming because you only need train your satellites on one train line and boom, you know everything that's coming through. It is a rough hand to be dealt. And in the only other deep water port they have is St. Petersburg. And even then they get caught in the, in the gap between Sweden and Denmark. Russia is a landlocked nation for most of the year. Yeah, that is why they always look at us in the Baltics. That's why they, we've always, they've always tried to get us in their sphere of interest because uh, we're a bit southern than them. Riga is about the same latitude as Calgary, essentially, like upper middle Canada, up there. Yet Riga port does not freeze over. That is why Peter the Great wanted it. That is why Stalin wanted it. Because otherwise, you know, they really lack their window to the West. You know, the the Russians look at warm water the same way Australians look at cold beer. Uh, it's something we desperately need. Um, you know, the Russians have always looked for warm water ports. It's why they tried so hard to take uh, what's now Tsingtao in China. It's why they tried so hard to secure. They really, really wanted Bremen in uh, in Germany because that would be uh, an entrance into the North Sea. You know, it's why they're willing to go for Syria and help the Syrian government, A, to show that they're in the Middle East and be players at the table there, but also because they get a Syrian warm water port out of it. Um, but it is the Mediterranean. You're always going to get trapped at Gibraltar regardless. Um, you know, they desperately need the warm water to actually be able to 
float the boats out and actually have a functioning navy because as any good historian or any good strategist will tell you the ability to have a navy is so important because it's one third the cost to transport all your ammunition your fuel your water your supplies your reinforcements your you know your trackers everything needs to go usually by you know by sea so you're not spending a gazillion dollars in one train line and they just don't have that ability. The, the Russians do not have a car like the Americans do, where they have two huge coasts on the two most important seas in the world. And it's also about power projection, you know. You have to project power somehow. Oh, God, yes. Unfortunately, the Russians, with the economy the way they are, uh, and the situation it is with Russia, doesn't have the coffers or the backup materials to project soft power like they used to be able to. You know, America has the money to buy off republics and and pay for elections and you know give huge foreign aid. Talking about paying, I shall interrupt you now for an special important announcement from our propaganda department. Paid by your listeners, I will now deliver you this important statement. <clears throat> Trump literally was paid by Putin to kill Epstein by shoving a dead baby in his throat. Paid to you by the propaganda department of the eastern border. Now carrying on with the show. <laughs> Still better than some North Korean television. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> That's the thing. I've spent all... I've done three interviews today, and all of them have been very serious talks. <laughs> so it's kind of nice to have one that's not... You know, I, I am not that kind of a person. You should have... You've listened to my show. You should know who you're inviting on yours, <laughs> right? I, I have, yes, quite... No, I've, I've listened to your show quite a lot. So, yeah, I know this is... <laughs> like, all I can do is, like, you probably interviewed people more academical than me. I, all I can do is, like, bring some sort of an insider's perspective because I've spoken to people who are right now in these border places. And I, I basically... My parents were in the Soviet Union and I collect those experiences. So, hey, I, I hope what I can bring to the table also counts for something. But uh, I, don't, I don't claim to be an academical expert on things. So I'm very honored to be here, Matt. No, but that's exactly why I wanted you on the show, because you, you're very personable. You know what you're talking about. You come across really well. You know, the other two guys on this podcast, on this episode, are very academic. And it's, it's quite nice for the audience to have that broken up and have almost a real person speaking to them because academics do speak a certain way. It's nice to hear it from someone who sounds like they're just having a conversation rather than, you know, the, the standard, you know, here is the lecture 101 about why uh, Eastern European politics is so important. You know, it's, it's nice to have someone who talks like a real person. Uh, thank you, man. Thank you. And hey, uh, this is going to be on my show too. As you here now, listeners, and if you ever pop up in, in Lafayette again, let me know. And if you ever need my opinion again, I am always happy to provide. Thank you, good sir. We'd love to. We're uh, doing lots of episodes about this kind of region of the world, so I'm sure we'll uh, we'll cross paths again. Then, до свидания, товарищи. And thank you for the conversation. До свидания, товарищ. До свидания, товарищ. Спасибо, Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.